0: Right. Um, I don't know whether you remember um, a couple of weeks ago, last time John was um, speaking to us, um, but really he was speaking to us um, about the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit in verses 15 and 17. He talks about how he's going to send the disciples um, another helper. Um but as we've, as we've said and we've um, mentioned sort of many times in the past, there can be a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit, um, about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. And there's lots of different ideas and, and theories about that in the world today. Um, but Paul talks about this in, in 2 Corinthians. Um, Paul says. If anyone comes who preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So Paul is saying there that there is a danger of not only believing a false message, but also of receiving a false spirit. Um, I don't know about you, but I find that quite um, a scary thought because I don't like the thought of having a spirit, which isn't the Holy Spirit, having any influence on me or having, you know, dwelling within me. That's quite a quite a scary thought. I certainly wouldn't want that. Um, but Paul says that there's a danger of that, and there's a danger of receiving that wrong spirit if we receive the wrong message. Um, but what I really want to talk to you about briefly, <clears throat> just in a few moments this morning, is these verses, they come after Jesus has promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. And even though the Holy Spirit is not actually specifically mentioned in verses 19 to 31, in the context, everything in verses 19 to 31, it's really unfolding about the work of the Spirit. It's unfolding about the what the Holy Spirit does. It's all through the Holy Spirit. Um, And so what I want to do is to just talk to you, um, there's six main points really, about what the Holy Spirit is doing and how we can recognise the counterfeit from the true. So, So the first thing is, if you look with me at verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, A little while longer, And the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So, the first thing that the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to a revelation of Jesus. He opens our eyes to a revelation of Jesus. What does Jesus mean when he says that a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me? Well, there's there's different ways that we can understand that. In, in the initial way, he was talking about um, his resurrection and Jesus knew that he was going to die soon and be crucified and then there would be this time where he wouldn't be seen whilst he was in the grave. Um, but what's interesting is that when Jesus rose from the dead, when he was resurrected, the only people who saw him, as far as I'm aware, were were believers. You think about Jesus appearing to the two Marys. He appeared to the eleven, and then he appeared later on to five hundred brethren. And sometimes we think, well, why why didn't Jesus, after he'd resurrected, why did he not show himself? Um, why did he not show himself? to people who didn't believe but there's a reason for that do you remember when Jesus talks about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and the the rich man is in agony in hell and he all he wants to do is he just wants someone to dip the cool of his tongue and give him some relief whilst he's in hell and and the and the man who's in agony in hell he says please let me just go back to, um, to, tell, to warn my relatives so that they don't have to come to this place too. But one of the things Jesus says is that even if Moses or one of the prophets preaches to them, they still will not believe. And so one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, Jesus didn't appear to the people who had resurrected, the only reason he appeared to believers was because he knew that those who didn't believe would not be able to receive what he had to say. Um. But you know, there's a deeper level to this, I think. Um, when, when Jesus says, a little while uh, longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me no more. Um, because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in the Father. He's speaking about something deeper than just what happened after the resurrection. He's speaking about seeing Jesus through the eyes of faith, um, when when we don't have Jesus with us anymore. We see Jesus, the Holy Spirit, focuses the attention of our hearts on Jesus, even though he isn't physically with us anymore. It says in 1 Peter and 1 verse 8, it says, "'Whom having not seen, you love. "'Though you do not see him, yet believing, "'you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory.'" So we see Jesus in our lives, in the circumstances that are around us, though we don't see him physically. We often think, oh, I wish I I could have just sat with Jesus and been with him, with the disciples, and seen him physically. But actually, we have something far greater than that. We can see Jesus in a way which is far greater than even the disciples had. Because the thing is, we see Jesus now, not just as the Jesus physically who was with us, not the Jesus on the cross, not the Jesus of the resurrection, but we see, as it says in, um, in verse 20, that Jesus is in us. We see the internal Jesus. We see the fact that Jesus is no longer external to us, but he is living in us by his Holy Spirit. Um, and this is something that even the disciples couldn't appreciate When it says at that day, that day was, you know, when the Holy Spirit came and Jesus now dwells within us. Um, And, you know, Jesus, it says in Colossians, it says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. In you, the hope of glory. So, so now we see Jesus through the eyes of faith, but we see him as dwelling within us, as changing, changing us. We see the hope of glory is dwelling within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Um, one of the things that's interesting is, is there, Jesus talks about, he says in verse 20, At that day <clears throat> you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. And really, that's a very difficult thing to understand. It seems like Jesus is living in the Father, the Father's living in him, and we're living in him, and what is that? And we could complicate it if you want to, and, and theologians talk about something called perichoresis, and they talk about how the members of the Trinity, they indwell one another, and they actually live inside one another, and it's as though... It's as though and as though there's like a divine dance with all of the members of the Trinity going in and out of each other and this perfect manifestation of, of the love of God. And we're drawn into that dance. We're drawn into that community. We're drawn into that manifestation. So Jesus says, I in you and you in me and I, I in you. So the members of the Trinity, they sort of, they embrace one another. They... They sort of are in this sort of divine dance with one another, almost weaving in and out of one another. And we are drawn into this community of love. And it's a community of perfect love. That's what Jesus says. I in you and you in me. So there's something that's quite quite mind-blowing about this. There's something that's quite mind-blowing about this reality that Jesus is actually living within us. But what what difference does that actually make to our lives? What difference does it mean to know that Christ is living within me, Christ is living inside me? I think it changes our whole view of life, because normally we think in life, we think, well, I'm I'm just a product of my circumstances. I'm a product of the way I've grown up. I'm a product of my genetics. And so we think that we're kind of caught where we are and we think we can't change because we're just, we're just a sort of a mechanical um, outcome of forces that have been done to us. And we're determined by things that we can't control. But the fact is that Christ is in us, it should change our whole approach to life. Christ is in us, the hope of glory, and that means that we can change. We can break free of our nurture. We can break free of our genes. We can break free of all of those factors and things that have seemed to shape us so much because we have a power which is unbreakable and overwhelming within us. So we can't say anymore, I'm caught in this sin. I can't change. I'm never going to be able to change. We can't really say that. How can that fit in with Christ in you, the hope of glory? And so often, you know, and and I have this as well, but so often what that really is is it's an expression of a lack of faith that Christ is really within us. So we have the power to change. You know, when we say, I've got no choice but to keep sinning. I can't get out of this addiction. I'm in this pit and there's no way out. Well, Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ in you the hope of glory. You see, the reality is is that sometimes, you know, sometimes people emphasize things, I think, too much in the Christian life. So I've heard a lot of Christians emphasize the fact, you know, we're never going to be perfect in this life. You know, we're always going to be struggling with sin. We can't really expect to make much real progress. But, you know, I don't think that's true. I think that, you know, we will always have sin, we will always have the flesh um, whilst we're in this life. But the reality is is that we can expect in our lives substantial, noticeable and transformative change. We really can live this life um, that we're promised to. We're called to live a life of love. It says in Ephesians, "Live a life of love, even as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us." So so often Christians are just defeatist, we're defeatist, we have a defeatist mentality about ourselves, about our lives, that basically we've almost finished before we've even begun. And I'm not meaning to minimise the, 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 the power of the indwelling flesh and our weakness, but we have to say that either Christ in us, the hope of glory, is stronger than we are, and either he's stronger than the flesh, and he's stronger than the devil, or our flesh and Satan is stronger. It is an either-or situation, and in Christ, we have the resources to live a life of love that God has called us to. You know, it says in 1 John 4 and verse 4, it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Amen. (laughs) I mean, because that's the reality, And and so often in my Christian life, I've just had all of this, sounds awful, but all of this negativity. You know, you can't live a Christ life like, and, and yes, we have to be realistic. The flesh is indwelling with us, but we have a power that conquered the grave, and we have a power that empowers us to live differently, to be differently, and to be what Christ has called us. So you just need to tell that to yourself. You just need to preach to yourself, and you just need to say, if you're a believer, you need to say, Christ is in me, the hope of glory. Christ is in me the hope of glory. I can live in the way that God has called me to because I have the very power of God himself living in me. Anything else other than that is really a lie because it says in Romans that sin will not have dominion over you because you are no longer under sin, but you are under grace. So, so that's really Christ living in us. Christ living in us. And that's what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit helps us to see Jesus no longer as, as someone out there, but as, as, as a present within us, Christ within us, and all of the changes to our lives that that makes. But secondly, the Spirit makes the love of Jesus a tangible reality as we walk in obedience, As we walk in obedience, the love of Jesus becomes a tangible reality. Um, So so first of all, Jesus says in verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it's he who loves me. Um, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. So we know that if we're walking in love, that's how we see Jesus. That's how we see this God of love. That's how we experience him. Um, 1 John talks about this it says God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him so it's as we walk in obedience as we realise that Christ is in us the hope of glory and we walk out that life um, believing that that then um, Jesus loves us and manifests himself to us one of the things that I think is very difficult when we look at passages like this, is so much of the language really is the language of experience. Because what does it mean when Jesus says that he will love us and he will manifest himself to us? How can you really explain that intellectually? How can you really explain intellectually that we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us? The whole point of this is is that really we're not talking about something intellectual, we're talking about something experiential. We're talking about something experiential, something in our lived experience. You know, lots of Christians are very, very wary of experience because experience has been associated with emotionalism and, and sort of, you know, histrionics almost. Um, and sometimes it can be. But well, I do really believe that if all we've got in our Christian life is just a knowledge of some propositional facts, then really we're not getting it. We need to be and to experience the love of God. And that is something that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to us. And so that is something not irrational, but suprarational. We're talking about realities we can't really put into words or describe. It's something that's suprarational. I don't know about you, but at times of your life when you've really been upset over something and, and you've just needed someone to comfort you. Um, there have been times in my life when that's been the case. And sometimes what we're comforted most by is just, I know this sounds ridiculous, but it's just by a hug. It's just by someone putting their arms around you. And when you're within the warmth of that embrace, you just feel loved and you just feel secure. And you're not kind of going through in your mind all of the intellectual reasons why someone loves you and why someone doesn't love you. It's an experienced reality. That hug is an experienced reality. You know, um, you know, casting crowns, I, 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 I shouldn't really refer to casting crowns, but you know, they, they, they talk about this in a song. And uh, they say, you know, hold it all together. Everybody needs you strong, but life hits you out of nowhere and ba- barely leaves you holding on. And when you're tired of fighting, chained by your control, there's freedom in surrender. Lay it down and let it go. So when you're on your knees and answers seem so far away, you're not alone. Stop holding on and just be held. Your world's not falling apart. It's falling into place. I'm on the throne. Stop holding on and just be held. Just be held in the embrace of God. That's what Jesus means when he says, I'm going to love you and I'm going to manifest myself to you. It's an experience. It's an experience. But really, how does this this experience come? Um, You know, I think one of the problems as well is that sometimes, and I speak this to myself, is sometimes we're seeking to minister to other people out of a place of. Barrenness ourselves. We're actually in a place of barrenness. It's like we're in the desert and we're dry. And we're trying to minister to other people with God's love, but we're doing that out of a place of barrenness. Because we haven't had this experience of the love of God poured out in our hearts, we're ministering to other people um, from a place of barrenness. Um, But really, this is a spiritual thing. You know, it says in Romans 5 and verse 5, it says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we need, and it is right for us, to seek an experience of the love of Christ. We need to seek an experience of the love of Christ. We need to know that we know that we know deep down that we are loved By God, that we are loved immeasurably, that nothing that we can ever do or say will remove that love of God from us. We need that reality to go deep down into the core of our beings so that we never feel alone or unloved again. And then it's from that place of knowing that we're loved and of knowing who we are in Christ that we can then minister to others. And actually, I think it's very scriptural for me to say that you should seek to have an experience of the love of God because that's exactly what the apostle Paul prays for in Ephesians in Ephesians he says for this reason i bow my knees before to the father of our lord jesus christ that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and depth depth and length and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So he says there, passes knowledge. It's not an intellectual thing, surpassing knowledge. We know the facts. We know that the fact is that, that God sent his only son to die on the cross for us, and that's the reality. But that objective fact needs to become a reality. And the only person who can make that a reality is not me or John or Adam but only the Holy Spirit can do that for you. And it's only through prayer. So, so that, is, that is very important. So, so first of all, um, yeah, the Holy Spirit um, gives us that vision of Jesus. Um, he, um, he, he shows us and makes the love of Jesus a tangible reality to us. But thirdly, the Spirit sets up residence in our hearts. He sets up residence. He makes his house in me and you, um, you know. If you just look at um, it, says in uh, verse, um, it says in verse twenty-three. It says, "If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him." So home speaks of a couple of things. Firstly, it speaks of permanency. The Holy Spirit has come in, if we're Christians, we believe, to stay for the long haul. He's not just come on a short visit. He's not popping in and popping out again. The Holy Spirit has made his home in my heart. But secondly, home indicates intimacy. Home is the place where your most intimate, closest moments happen, when you're really who you are. Home indicates intimacy. So the Holy Spirit comes home to be in your heart permanently and he comes there to give an intimate presence of the presence of God. Do you know, what, in, in the Bible, we're described as temples of the Holy Spirit, a temple of the Holy Spirit. So in a real sense, the Holy Spirit is even closer to the core of our being than our bodies are, because a temple is the building, the temple is the outside place, but the holy of holies is the heart, And that's where the Holy Spirit is dwelling. So, even closer to me than my heart beating, and even closer to me than my lungs or my brain, the Holy Spirit is in that close part, that closest intimate part. That's where the Holy Spirit is dwelling. So, He sets up His home there. But I want to just mention to you um, uh, you know, Judas asked this question in verse 22. And he says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the whole world? How is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the whole world? And I think that's a big question. That's one of the things we've, we can really struggle with about who Jesus is. Why does Jesus only seem to focus on specific people? It's a bit like when he, he, he gives the um, parables. And he almost seems to kind of close things off so that it's only certain people who he reveals his truth to. But I think the way to understand that is that the radio signal of Jesus' manifestation, and who Jesus is, is going out to the whole world. Because Jesus says in John, he says, Lift it up, I will draw all people for, to me. And it says in John 3.16 that God loved the whole world, that whoever um, believes in him would not perish. But the issue is, is our transmitters are broken. Some people's transmitters are broken. They cannot receive the signal of the manifestation of Jesus because it says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Because the thing is, when the manifestation of Jesus comes, then light floods into people's lives and things start getting revealed. People's idolatries start getting revealed and people don't like that. Um, it says in John 3: it says, This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Because if you think about it, if you think about who Jesus is, you know, if you think about who Jesus is, what did Jesus do when he came to Jerusalem and when he saw how the people in Jerusalem had rejected the prophets and all of the messengers who God had sent to them? Well, Jesus was really racked with grief. He was racked with grief as he approached um, Jerusalem and he was in anguish and turmoil over this. So if Jesus had already decided that he didn't want to manifest himself to them, why would he then be racked or anguished by that? Why would, it wouldn't make sense, you know. I could manifest myself to you, but now I'm not, and, and now I'm, I'm in turmoil because, because you're rejecting me. It doesn't really make sense. The reality is this. There is no deficit in the love of Jesus for the world. But the gaping deficit is on people's willingness to receive that manifestation. There's no, lack of love of Je- There's no lack in Jesus' love for the world. There's no lack in his heart. But there is a lack in people's willingness to receive it. And just moving on um, in uh, verse um 25 and 26, the fourth thing that the Spirit does is the Spirit brings back Jesus' words to our remembrance. He brings back the things that Jesus has said to us to our remembrance. Um, It says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So there is two senses to this promise that Jesus makes. There is two senses to the way in which um, Jesus is bringing back his words to remembrance. We have to remember the context if we are gonna interpret the Bible properly. And Jesus was talking to his disciples and he was saying primarily to them that the Holy Spirit, when I'm gone, when I'm ascended, the Holy Spirit is going to remind you of all of my teachings. So that when I'm gone, you're going to be able to write this down in the eyewitness accounts that we call the Gospels. So sometimes when people are arguing about the authenticity of the Bible, they are removing that supernatural element because Jesus specifically said here that the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance everything that I have said to you. Um, And so sometimes we wonder, well, how could the Gospels be written as eyewitness accounts you know, how, how could people possibly remember, even if it's 10 or 20 years, how can they possibly remember? I mean, I can't remember that. How could they possibly remember everything that Jesus said and did? How can they remember down to the details of his conversations? Well, we'll never be able to answer that question fully without understanding that it's the Holy Spirit who has brought back his remembrance. You know, it says in the Bible, and that was something that was that was unique to the disciples. That has never happened again before or since. There's a sense in which this is a unique promise to the disciples that Jesus is going, the Holy Spirit is going to bring back those words to their remembrance so they can write it. And it's a promise which gives its fruition in us having the Bible today. Because in Ephesians 2 and verse 19 to 20 it says, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners." our fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So that primary remembering of the Holy Spirit, of remembering Jesus' words, that was instrumental in bringing us the Bible, and that has given us that foundation of apostolic teaching, which we now base our faith on. So that's one sense. But I also think that you know, the, that when, when he says the helper whom the Holy Spirit will, the Father will send, he will bring things to your remembrance, it's not just a promise to them, although it is primarily to them, but it's actually a promise to all of us, the subjective work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because how many times have you been with someone who's really distraught and traumatised, maybe another Christian, and they just can't see um, the way out of the situation that they're in, and you don't really have anything to say to them other than just trite things. You know, Sometimes we say these things when people are upset, don't we? So God loves you and, you know, I don't know, all things work together for good. But that doesn't just seem to really hit the spot. It just sounds very hollow and very trite. But in those situations, there's another more subjective way in which the Holy Spirit brings things from the Bible, a specific promise, a specific word that's just for that person. And that specific word or that specific promise, it brings healing into that person's life. But not only then, maybe maybe you have Jehovah's Witnesses at your doors and maybe they're kind of pummeling you with all these questions and they seem much better trained than any Christians ever are. And they seem to know what they believe and why they believe it. And you don't. Um, But maybe at that moment, you hear a whisper in your ear and the Holy Spirit whispers to you something from Colossians, saying that you know in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. But the Holy Spirit is whispering and speaking things to us, bringing things, bringing Jesus' words, the words of the Bible, the words of songs that we used to worship God. He's using them all the time to bring them to our remembrance in a practical way. Um, but... Moving on from that, um, fifthly, um, you know, we move on to these lovely verses, really, which everybody loves, this lovely verse, this wonderful promise in verse 27, when Jesus says, "'Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, and neither let it be afraid.'" So, so really what Jesus is saying there is that the Holy Spirit, another thing that the Holy Spirit does, is he produces the fruit in our lives of a supernatural peace. He produces the fruit in our lives of a supernatural peace. At this point, it was really like Jesus was, I mean, he was literally about to die, obviously, and, and it is as though he's giving his last gift to his followers and to his friends. You know, often when somebody dies, they will give them something maybe... I don't know, a book that they had when they were young or something that's just full of sentimental meaning and they give that as their last parting gesture to that person. And Jesus, he knew that this world is beset everywhere we look with troubles and difficulties and conflicts and pain and anxiety and fear. And Jesus knows that that is the world that we live in, that he knows that that's the world that we inhabit because he entered into that fully. And as his gift, as his last parting gift, the gift he decides to bestow upon them is the gift of peace. It's the gift of peace. In other words, peace is our inheritance. Peace is our inheritance. You know, just in the same way in which you can say, well, Christ is in me, the hope of glory, we can also say peace is our inheritance. Peace is our inheritance in Jesus. Peace is our inheritance. It doesn't feel like it sometimes, but peace is our inheritance. But it's not just any peace that Jesus gives us. It's not just any peace. Jesus says, it's my peace. It's my peace. It's a distinctively different peace to the peace that the world gives And we know that there is a true peace and a false peace. And the book of Jeremiah speaks about this. In Jeremiah 6.14, Jeremiah speaks about um, some of the prophets and the false teachers at that time. And what they were doing is they promised a counterfeit peace and a healing that did not go very deep at all. A counterfeit peace and a healing which didn't go deep. And it says in Jeremiah, it says, they have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. So there's a true peace and a false peace. And the world offers us peace in a variety of ways. It says if we could just change our circumstances, then we'd be um, peaceful. If we could just escape into drugs or alcohol, just anesthetize ourselves to it all, then we'd be peaceful. I mean, and, and to be honest, there are secular forms of, of uh, you know, um, psychology and, and so on. They're not wrong in themselves, I certainly wouldn't want to say that, but they're not the whole answer, because they're just saying, well, if you just think in a slightly different way... You know you'll be peaceful, but that can't be the full answer, because the big questions—the things in life that still trouble us—guilt and our sense of a need for forgiveness, the reality um, of apparent meaninglessness in the world, the reality of our mortality and the fact that we're not going to live forever—these are all inescapable realities that we can't we can't get away from. We can't just distract ourselves all our lives and pretend that those things aren't there. But Jesus gives us a kind of peace that can face those things head on. Not the peace of avoidance, but a peace that confronts reality. Um, you know, because really a peace, which, a peace which only remains peaceful by avoidance, it's actually a kind of terror in a sense. It's a terror of facing up. To the big questions and of the big things that cause us anxiety. You know, I, I just, I'm so inspired by this, and, and do you know what I mean? I'm being really honest, because I do believe that God actually wants to bring us to this place of peace, but I've got to be honest, a bit like when you're preaching, I don't always have that peace myself, not always, not to that extent that I believe that I should. You know, to the fact that, you know, you could just look in the barrel of a gun And you're just gonna be completely peaceful. Or the fact that you have an impending illness and you're just gonna be completely peaceful. And and you know that's something that we're all different, that's something I wrestle with and I think we probably all do. And so this isn't to condemn you if you don't have peace. But what I'm trying to say is that Jesus does offer that kind of peace. And, And you know, and how you know however difficult it is to get to that point of peace, we can that peace does exist as a reality. Because I'm just so amazed by what the Apostle Paul says. And if we look in Acts chapter 20 and verses 22 to 24, and the Apostle Paul says, he says, Now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But look at this phrase, he says, But none of these things move me. None of these things move me. I know that I might die if I go to this city. I know that chains await me. I know that sufferings await me. I know that beatings await me. But he says, none of these things move me. They don't bother me. Because he says, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So God does want to move us that way. None of us are there completely but God wants to move us that way to a place of peace and it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's just very briefly um, characteristics of the peace that Jesus gives us. So A, it's a peace which is, I've already said this, it's independent of adverse circumstances because it's a peace in Jesus and Jesus doesn't change As we're united to Jesus, um, because Jesus doesn't change, um, then then we, if we're fully dwelling and abiding in Jesus, then we're not going to chop and change as circumstances in life come to us. We're going to be steady and immovable because Jesus is steady, and we're receiving His peace, not our own peace. And as I've already said, you know, it's a peace that confronts rather than retreats from painful realities. So just as Jesus was saying, my peace I give you, we know that he was just off to Gethsemane. And we know that in Gethsemane, he would sweat great drops of blood. And we know that after Gethsemane, he faced the horrors of the cross. So it wasn't a peace that avoided those realities. And it's a peace that endures rather than fluctuates in life. And, you know, it says in Isaiah 26 and verse 3, God promises, he says, as Neil spoke this morning, he says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. And it's hard, isn't it? We find that so hard to believe sometimes. Um, You know, when we're in different situations, we find that so hard to believe. But ultimately, either we're right or the Bible's right. You will keep him in perfect peace. God is able to keep us in perfect peace so that we can enjoy a peace which endures and doesn't fluctuate. And finally, it's a peace which already exists and doesn't need to be manufactured. Do you know what? When, when, um, when, uh, when Paul says in Philippians, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God. Which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the peace of God that passes all understanding, it's not something we're trying to work up or whip up or kind of create by going into some Zen-like state. The peace of God already exists as, as an entity. It's it's not a it's a spiritual entity, it's not a physical thing, but it is a, it is an entity that exists, and we can receive the peace of God as an entity. We don't have to create a piece, it's not a manufactured piece, but it's a piece that we receive. And, and finally, you know, I think it's interesting that Jesus says, um, Jesus says, um, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What does he mean, let not your heart be troubled? Well, that implies that there must be some kind of conscious choice you know, it says in uh, Proverbs that you know guard your heart in the way. So left to our own devices, my heart included, we will, we will, our hearts will move to a place of anxiety and concern and being worried about all the things, all the what ifs. Um, you know, and and our hearts will naturally go to that place. And but it says in Proverbs, guard your, guide your heart in the way. So Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart go in that direction. Make a choice, make a choice. Choose to believe that whatever you ask for in faith, you will receive. Choose to fix your mind on the Lord, as it says in Isaiah, rather than the chaos inside and outside you. Choose to present your requests to God, as it says in Philippians, and just receive the peace of God. And I believe that as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, that he will produce that fruit in our lives. Um, and finally we're nearly at the end of the um, chapter um, <clears throat> I just want to say just as a side note really because a Jehovah's Witness will, sudden, will someday come to you with this but um, in, um, in verse 28 when Jesus says I'm going to the Father for my Father is greater than I he doesn't mean that like the Father is a greater God than him in his being he just means that at the moment the Father is is in a greater place than him. His father is in heaven. Because Jesus says to his disciples in verse 28, he says, um, if you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the father. So the context is, is Jesus saying, look, disciples, if you really love me, you wouldn't be sad to see me go because I'm going somewhere far better. I'm going to my father who is greater than I, or who is in a greater place than I. But he's not actually saying that the father is a greater God. All the God is... All the Godhead is great, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we just need to be a bit, a bit careful about that. But finally, um, finally, and this is my last point, um, verses 28 to 31, the Holy Spirit assures us of Jesus' final victory. He assures us of Jesus' final victory. And this is the other thing the Holy Spirit does, is he, he reminds us that whatever we're going through, um, Jesus will be victorious. Jesus is going to the Father shortly, um, and, and he's confident about that. He says in verse 28, I'm going to the Father. And, but he also realises that the time is coming when the devil is going to have a field day, and that he's now going to go into a time when he's almost going into the devil's um, hands. You know, This is the time, of, this is the hour of darkness. He says, I will not talk to you much longer, for the rule of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. So he knows that this is going to be the day when Satan is going, to, is going to, you know, Jesus is going to be, the son of God is going to be tortured and crucified and Satan is going to be involved in that. That's what Satan wants. He, he has a hatred for Jesus. And, but Jesus says something. He says, he has nothing in me. Because Satan is a usurper. Satan tried to, you know, the temptation of Jesus. He says, all of these kingdoms and mine to give if you'll just worship me. But Satan doesn't own that rightfully. Satan is a usurper. And Jesus says, Satan has nothing in me, no legal right, no legal claim. And Jesus also said that he does not, let, he, the devil didn't make Jesus lay down his life, but Jesus cho- chose to lay down his life willingly. Remember when I was at home, we had a, like a poster on the wall and it said this, it sounds a bit cheesy, Christian thing but it says it was not the nails that held Christ to the cross but it was his love for me and you. So the devil wasn't winning the devil wasn't victorious in Jesus going to the cross. Jesus chose to go to the cross willingly freely for us. And the holy spirit reminds us of that. He reminds us of that. And you know at times in our lives when you know our lives are spinning out of control inside and outside the Holy Spirit reminds us that Jesus is still on the throne. He's still in control. That's the work of the Spirit. So so really that's that's what we've got to say about the Holy Spirit. If we want to realize, recognize, you know, what the characteristics of the Holy Spirit are compared to a counterfeit spirit, if we want to receive the right spirit and not the wrong spirit, we need to see the marks of his ministry. And the marks of his ministry are that he opens our eyes to a deeper revelation of who Jesus is. He makes the love of Jesus a tangible reality. He sets up residence in our hearts. He reminds us of the words of Jesus. He produces the fruit of supernatural peace in our lives. And he assures us that Jesus will have the ultimate victory.